You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against This Dream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that means is that I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just, this is not an intro class, okay? We have been talking in in previous weeks about uh, the new translation of Mahasi Sayadaw's Manual of Insight, Um, but tonight we're going to step out of that uh, progression a little bit uh, so that I can talk about generosity. When you come to this uh, Buddhist path, and here we do a Theravada Buddhist uh, approach, uh, mostly, uh, uh, really, uh, if you look at the the lineage of Against the Stream, it's a Thai forest uh, instruction. I tend to teach more Burmese-style Mahasi Sayadaw. And the difference is a kind of uh, focus on concentration and, and open awareness, which is more Thai forest, and the noting practice of the Burmese, which is this karnaka samadhi, or momentary concentration-based insight practice. But before you get into that part of the practice, uh, really you need to make a decision to come into the path of meditation. I know in the West, in in, in our culture, um, we don't typically come into the practice in the same way that they would in in a traditional Asian culture. I'm easily distracted by noise. Um, So, um, in the West, in our culture, the reason that people come into meditation practice is, is because of stress, typically, or some kind of Uh, suffering. Many people come because they've tried other approaches to relieve their suffering and it hasn't um, produced the result that they were looking for, uh, that kind of easy relief from it. Um, Maybe they come in because of stress, that's another way that people come in, looking for relief mostly. In in, in Asia, of course, where it's uh, deeply embedded in the culture, you come in much in the same way that you would come in uh, the way that people come in through the Judeo-Christian or whatever the tradition is in your family. And it's widespread and you don't need to be suffering. The other difference about the uh, culture of of Buddhist practice for uh, non-Asians or people who weren't born into it is that our practice here is focused around meditation. Uh, In Asia, meditation outside of the Burmese culture is not as common. (coughs) So when you do come, uh, you can come in a secular kind of tradition where the the religion has been thoroughly removed and and it's a kind of 
uh, totally focused to make uh, stress easier, or you can come into uh, this Western Buddhist uh, uh, way of being in the teaching, which is what this place is like. Um, <clears throat> we have a kind of, uh, we, we call this a Theravada Buddhist place, but it, it isn't traditional in any way if you would look at a, at a contemporary teaching in, in Burma, say. Um, we are very, um, my, uh, I go every year to Burma to sit with uh, the Sayadaw there, and whenever I start quizzing them about the usual, um, <clears throat> people are flying, you're telling me people are flying, and uh, uh, devas and demons, uh, which are part of that, the culture and the dialogue of, of Buddhism, and, and I love, although I don't believe it particularly, um, he says to me, <clears throat> you have one of those sharp Western minds where we have this sort of this scientific edge that we slice everything up with. Um, and when I said to one of the nuns, who was an American uh, in the beginning of her life, um, do you believe it? And, and do you believe this, this fantastic, what seems to me to be fantastic, mythology said, why wouldn't you believe it? I mean, are you saying that your perception is so right on that your capacity to, to uh, uh, explore um, your experience uh, allows you more information than, than everyone else has so you can see what's true and, and what isn't true? But in the West, where we come into this practice, in some sense what you do is you make a decision to be a good person. That's the entryway into this. Uh, you, uh, in some sense what that means is that you, you make a decision to renounce revenge. You make a decision to renounce um, compensation for all of the, the wrongs that have uh, been directed at you. Um, and in making this decision to be a good person, you enter into the uh, ethical trainings. Uh, in, in, uh, in householders' um, uh, training around ethics, it's five things. You undertake the practice to refrain from uh, causing harm by killing. And here we are in a, in a Western American Buddhist center and, and understanding that to come into this would mean that you've undertaken the practice to refrain from killing, and then who here is a vegan? So it's another way that we, uh, in particularly in American culture, are very used to plucking what we want and leaving anything that's inconvenient behind. But if you were to take, uh, undertake a practice to refrain from killing, what would, that, what would that look like? Knowing, for instance, that we're in the, the middle of the sixth great extinction because of the way that we uh, operate on the planet. The second is to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by taking what's not freely offered. And this is a, you may be thinking about, oh, don't steal, right? That's a very widely spread uh, uh, value in uh, all religions. But if you really were to examine that, 
how manipulative are you? How uh, much power do you have and how do you wield the power you have? Do you put people in a position where they have to give it to you, whether they want to or, or not? The third then is the, the practice to uh, refrain from causing harm through sexual conduct. Um, how do you use your sexuality? Uh, you may know that um, our culture is often described as a rape culture. I wouldn't say that rape would be a skillful means in terms of uh, sexuality. Um, I, I'm a, a gay man and, and uh, my, my youth was devastated by AIDS and there was a great conversation around what is the freedom to express your sexuality and what obligation do you have uh, in terms of protecting other people or yourself from disease. In fact, uh, when I was young, uh, it, it wasn't even considered really a medical issue, but more one of a political issue around uh, freedom of expression. The fourth is to undertake the practice to refrain, to refrain from causing harm through speech. This has, for me, always been the most difficult one because I have a tendency to uh, be sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> could you say, <laughs> or angry, and when I was younger I was quite a bit more angry than I am now, that those uh, expressions are non-harming. Uh, um, can you be authentic, can you be truthful in the expression of what you are um, thinking and feeling in the moment without doing it in such a way that's harming uh, to yourself or others? And then the last one is to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by the use of intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. It's a fine line, heedlessness, don't you think? What is that? The third martini is heedlessness. <laughs> <laughs> There are hundreds of precepts that the monastics take. For, for, for householders, this is kind of the basic level of, of ethics or ethical training. And, and then, after you've made the decision to be a good person and you've undertaken the practice of that, which is really to embrace this ethical stance in the world, we come to the practice of generosity. This is the thing that opens up the heart and in opening up the heart, we open up the, the, the possibility of the practice of meditation. We tend to talk about generosity uh, in three levels of generosity. So, The first is to give what you have, what you're not attached to and you don't need for your survival. This is a, in our culture where uh, we're so materially rich, this is uh, often an easy thing I was... Uh, reading, uh, I guess, this week, that the average American throws away 82 pounds of clothes a year. I mean, when you think of how many shoes you have. So to get to dispense with the clutter, the old stuff, is easy to do. Uh, the second level of generosity is to give what you have, what you are attached to, but you don't need for your survival. And this is probably the level that most of us uh, entertain giving at or uh, go through a process of giving through or 
thinking about it? What are you attached to? Um, when, uh, say, a homeless person approaches you on the street and asks you for some something, whatever they're asking for, money or food or whatever it is, what do you do? How do you think about that? Do you simply respond to somebody's request for need or do you need to go through a, a process of evaluation about whether you would or you wouldn't do that? Whether you would give what, the, what they're asking for? And then the third level of generosity is to give what you have, what you are attached to, what you need for your survival. And this is an unusual level of giving. Do you ever what would you consider it? How would you consider giving something that your your life may um, be the price of? We talk about it sometimes in, in relationship to mothers who uh, or fathers who risk uh, their their lives for their children. I had a, a friend named Pascal who was um, a Swiss. And every year they went into the Alps with a group of friends and there was a river, the place where they camped. And uh, this particular year the river was uh, really swollen with uh, water. Um, and uh, one of the people that they were with said that we swim every year and I'm going to swim this year. And in she went into the river and she got into trouble and Pascal jumped in to help and they both drowned. Are you ever prepared to give at that level of generosity? What would your thought have been if it was your friend of a lifetime in a river in trouble? Would you be willing to jump in or not? So when we talk about generosity, it's this spectrum of, of uh, willingness uh, to give. What is it that somebody has to do? What qualifications do they have to present in order for you to be willing to give? And understand that we're engaged in this discussion not because of the benefit to the other person, but because in moving in this path of openness, uh, of opening the heart, this is the practice that is at the beginning of that. Your own capacity for generosity is the thing that opens the heart, that allows you then to explore um, life more fully. If you're constantly tightening down, closing up, then you don't have the, the capacity then to open up to these other things. So in the beginning, you come in, you're in stress. Meditation is really good at stress. Maybe some of you have noticed that. You come in, you concentrate, the whole body-mind calms down. But I think that you'll find, if you get a handle on stress early in practice, that it will not be enough. And you'll see off on the horizon glittering happiness. <laughs> and off you'll go in pursuit of happiness. And meditation is really good at happiness. Um, you come into this place, you settle the body-mind, you begin to see your conditioning, begin to see the things that uh, keep you from choosing uh, happiness, 
keep you from connecting to other people. Uh, and you can begin to dismantle that conditioning pretty easily. But I think what you'll find is that happiness will not be enough. And then off on the horizon glittering is freedom. And then some of you will, will go for freedom. And uh, it will be a difficult place to get to freedom. But I think that if you can arrive there, what you'll discover is that it's enough. That actually to be free is this uh, wonderful way to be in, in, in the human form or all in the human form. But to understand that if you come back into what uh, you need to do in the beginning is to open the heart, to begin this process of generosity. Why is it uh, that generosity is this thing that opens up the possibility? If you're clinging to the idea that you need to get even, if you're clinging to the idea that you need to be compensated, you're filling up all of the bandwidth that you have, and it's being occupied, so that there's no space for anything else. In Asia, what they talk about in terms of the next step out of generosity into uh, choosing your, your path of meditation is patience. In, in our culture, we tend to talk about forgiveness, this uh, constant assigning of blame. Who's responsible for, for this thing that went wrong? Who needs to pay for that? This, this constant activity of blaming. Um, if somebody is always to blame, if somebody is always responsible and somebody is always owing, it makes it hard actually to even see, see them. Uh, it makes it hard then to see yourself because are you then somebody who can escape blame? Can you escape responsibility? I would think in, in, in Buddhist thought you can't, of course, because karma is inescapable. In Asia, they say, you want to be able to have the same amount of patience that you would have with a child, with an adult, without infantilizing them. Right? So we're not talking about making them into children. We're talking about bringing the degree of patience to them as they move through this a complex experience of what it is to be alive. When you, when you look at these central tenets of Buddhism, one is karma and one is um, reincarnation. When you think about taking an action and you take an action in the world, how good are you at predicting what actually the outcome of that will be? How good are you at predicting the outcome over a succession of lifetimes? what this simple action that you're taking in the present moment is. We can't know that, right? Um, when you were six months old, how successfully did you negotiate the care that you were receiving from your caregivers? Did you sit up in the, in the crib one day and say, Mom, get over here. We need to talk. I'm examining the way that you've been meeting me in the world, that you've been talking to me, that you've been handling my care, 
and I can see 20 years out, this is going to be a total disaster, and you need to step up. Should you do that? How about at a year old, or 18 months, or at three, did you sit them down and pour them tea with your tiny tea set? and say, we really need to discuss how this is going. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time you're three, your brain is 80% grown. You've grown your reaction to the environment in which you grew, and it's there, and it operates on everything. The way that you experience everything then is filtered through this brain that grew in response to the conditions that you faced. How you think of yourself, the working model of yourself, and the working model of the world comes from that interaction with your caregiver in these early months of life. You cry out to the world before Uh, five or eight, even eight months old is the range. You're just crying out to the world, no one in particular. The only voice you remember, you really respond to is the voice of your birth mother. But you're you're not focused on, on, on any attachment figure then. You're just crying out to the world, help! And then someone comes or they don't come. And they they pick you up and they empathetically touch into you and they understand what your communication is and then they meet the need or they don't meet the need the best that they can and in that interaction you understand how good you are at getting your needs met. If you cry out to the world and someone comes and they meet your needs you think of yourself as pretty good at getting your needs met. And if you cry out to the world and that isn't what happens you don't think that of yourself. You think, I'm not good at getting my needs met. The world is frightening. I don't know how I'll survive this. And in that interaction, in addition to creating the sense of yourself, you create the sense of the world as well. If you cry out and they come and they give you what you need, you think of the world as a benevolent place that will provide for you. And if you cry out, to the world and they don't come in a way that's meaningful to you, then you think of the world differently than that. Maybe you think that you can never get your needs met by asking, so then you need to take. Or or maybe you think that the world can give you, the world can meet your needs, but they're capricious and it's hard to figure out what you can do in, in your asking process to get them to do it. You can call out to the world and the response is hostility or anger or violence and so you have a whole different view of how the world is. So this process of meditation, of bringing this to your conditioning, this opening through the practice of generosity is to understand that we're all conditioned in this way. That all of our responses are are based on this early conditioning where we really were quite <coughs> powerless in doing it. And so it, this opening of space uh, for others also creates this opening of space for us. Do you have a sense of yourself uh, 
do you, does your own mind hold you with great kindness, with great tenderness? And does it recognize how difficult it is for you to move through this uh, process of life, or is it constantly condemning you? And then also understand that this working model that we have of the world affects how we respond to people, uh, how we respond to need in general. Um, I like to... um, If you if you have uh, the expression of need, uh, and you turn that toward your caregiver, and then they evaluate whether the need is a good need or a bad need, uh, you as a child will take in that metric. And then, as you're you become an adult, and somebody approaches you with those needs, you'll have that association with them. You'll be. Right. And um, some needs will be uh, needs that can be met, and some be needs will be needs that can't met, be met. And so that's not a good thing to do. Well, <laughs> if so, if we some just people are needy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Some people experience other people's need as an intrusion or a demand um, that needs to be repulsed um, because uh, it is uh, it is um, an unacceptable need, an unacceptable demand. Um, but it but it isn't that a particular need is universally intrusive or universally out of line. It's based on your conditioning and how you uh, understand uh, that. If you grew up in an environment where your needs were uh, consistently, constantly rejected, then what that does is produce a terrible sadness around needing anything. And so you have a tendency to suppress that. So that when somebody would come to you with quite an ordinary need, say for closeness or comfort, just being seen, uh, it would touch you into the terrible sadness of your own experience of being uh, perennially rejected. And so in a defense against experiencing the terrible sadness that you hold in, uh, and is part of your conditioning, you would reject them. What you're rejecting then is actually your own uh, conditioned terrible sadness, not the, the quality of, of uh, whether the need is good or not. One so there's of, no such thing as a bad need. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> yes, there must be, because uh, everything is possible. Um, <laughs> Just checking. We can leave it there. Uh, can we add two words to that? That's a bad need for me. That it doesn't fit well for me. Um, uh, you know, I like to talk about attachment theory, uh, and if you look at the dynamic, say, between a dismissing attachment strategy and a, a preoccupying attachment strategy, 
the main operation, the main thing that motivates a preoccupied attachment strategy is proximity to their attachment figure. An attach, a person who has a dismissing attachment uh, style or strategy never wants to be alone because if they're, if they're ever left to their own devices, it, they have a tendency to fall into awareness of the terrible sadness. So having someone else there to uh, inflate them uh, keeps them out of the terrible sadness. And so you have this pairing between somebody who is totally willing to abandon everything in their life for proximity and somebody who never wants to be alone. And so those needs mesh very well. But if you were to take a preoccupied person and put them with a fearful avoidant person, the fearful avoidant person needs to withdraw. So the need for proximity in the preoccupied person is not useful to the, the fearful avoidant person because they need to be able to withdraw. And the need to withdraw is not useful to the preoccupied person because they need proximity. So does that make that particular need, which is so useful in one pairing and so um, you know, just totally not doable in another, good or bad, which is a kind of Buddhist uh, idea about all things. It isn't the thing itself, but it's the relationship to it that, that makes it problematic. In what circumstances do you normally um, experience people wanting something from you? It's, uh, I find in, in our culture, because of the way that we distribute uh, resources, that it's often the homeless population that is uh, approaching you. Uh, and how do you then respond to that? Um, so um, as a way of priming this practice of generosity, what I like to do is give you uh, money. Um, what I want you to do is, and I've stamped all of the bills so that you can understand that this is a meditation practice that I'm offering you and not spending money. <laughs> um, if you undertake this meditation practice, what I want you to do is carry this bill around. So in that carrying it around, what you're doing is opening to the possibility that you may have an opportunity to be generous, so that you're priming the mind to be paying attention to the circumstances of your life uh, and your environment and um, being mindful that there may be a possibility for you to be generous in your environment. I want you to be safe while you do this at the same time because we have a dangerous society. But I want you to also be open to the possibility that you could be generous in a moment if, if it arises. Um, and then I want you to be mindful in the act of generosity. When I originally suggested this uh, to, to people to do, um, they said to me that they didn't have extra to give away. And so I'm going to give it to you so you can't say that you, you uh, don't have it. And then if somebody comes up, or somebody asks for something, or some, somebody needs something, you'll remember that you're carrying this dollar around for that moment and then you'll just give it to them. And then I want you to pay attention to the conditioned mind that arises in response to that. Are you evaluating whether you think they deserve it or not? Are you um, 
What are you thinking uh, about them? Um, how do you know uh, in your evaluation of them whether or not they deserve it or not? Um, I can give you uh, some examples of this. Um, I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard going, do you, does any, has anybody ever gone to the, the Day of the Dead uh, thing in, in the cemetery? So I'm, I, the parking is terrible, so I, I live close to the subway, so I take the train. And I always bring a bunch of dollars with me because there's many opportunities on the train to be generous. But I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and uh, there was a, a, a homeless teenager you know, we have homeless teenagers in tens of thousands of homeless teenagers in Los Angeles. Do you know, you know, do you know why you would be a homeless teenager? You know, you get pushed out of your house. A high, a high number, a high percentage of uh, gay teens pushed out because their families rejected them. From that. Um, do you know what life on the street is like? how awful it is? Do you know what it must be like to choose that life over the life of your home? What is it like not to have one of those at all? Uh, in, in withdrawn and silent, uh, underneath uh, an overhang, um, sometimes um, when people ask you for things, they're very animated in it, and sometimes they're just there and you may not even be able to see them as you're walking by. So I just put the dollar into a, a cup, paper cup. And then I'm walking further down, uh, um, I guess it's, it's Vine from Hollywood up there. And these three women walk by me and they say, there's a bunch of people asking for money there. Don't give it to them. They just got out of the Mercedes. And I walk down the street and there are these two guys and they're asking very actively for money, and they're sitting across from a Mercedes. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm not going to give them any. <laughs> so generosity is this freedom to give and freedom not to give. Often what happens in this process is there's a kind of afflictive guilt that arises in us, that we've been conditioned to give even when we don't want to, or even when we don't have it. So if you remember my list to give what you have, what you're attached to or not attached to, what you need or you don't need for your survival. Um, I was once in San Bernardino, it was you know, like 118 degrees and they were these two kids, maybe 15 and 13, and they had a pit bull puppy on a string. And they tapped on my window and they said, can you give us some money for dog food. We need to be able to feed the puppy. And so I, I, I open my wallet and I look in and, fuck, I've only got 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Do I give the kid a 20 or not? So I give him a 20. And I'm thinking the whole time, I need dog food is a great line. I wonder whether it's true or not. <clears throat> And then uh, after I have lunch and I'm leaving, I see that the younger kid is holding the, the dog by the string in front of PetSmart. And then I think, actually, maybe they did tell me the truth. Um, 
but it isn't always money. Sometimes it's something else. But uh, are you then willing to meet the people? Are you are you willing to be present for them? In some sense, this is this activity of generosity to actually be present for the people that you are engaged with, regardless of what they want or their station relative to you. So. Um, this practice of, uh, of generosity is to remember that you're carrying this bill around so that you have the um, <clears throat> mindset of looking for opportunities to be generous, to be safe in this, and then if the opportunity arises, to give the bill, and then to watch your own mind in reaction to this so that you can begin to understand your conditioning around this. Can you give without needing anything back. If you're giving in a way that you're trying to get something back, then this isn't what we mean by generous. This is a transaction. Um, it is very common, uh, for instance, for people who undertake this practice to say, I gave them the dollar and they didn't even say thank you. And this is not what we mean by generosity. This is that would be a transaction where you paid somebody a dollar to say thank you to you. You should have been more explicit in the terms of the agreement that you were negotiating. Um, so I'll go around and uh, I will ask you whether you want to undertake the training and then if you do, say yes and I'll give you a dollar. Okay. Would you like to do the training? Yeah. Would you like to do the training? Yes, I would. Would you like to do the training? Yes. Would you like to do the training? So, next week, if you come to class again uh, and you've given away the dollar, I'll give you another one. Okay. Uh, and then keep track. If you find uh, there, there was an interesting um, exchange. It's sometimes useful to hear it. I was at, at the Melrose Center and I, w I was walking to my car and these two men who had been living on the, the, the stairs of the church across the street came running over and they said, could you give us $2.80? And I said, $2.80 is a very specific <laughs> amount. What do you need it for? And uh, uh, he said, we're going to get a 40 ounce. And I said, oh, uh, why are you going to get a 40 ounce? And, and um, he said, because we're celebrating. And I said, what are you celebrating? And he said, my friend just got out of prison. And so I said, what were you in prison for? And he said, stupid shit. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't have $2.80. I gave him $3. And as they were walking away, one of them turned around and said, I came at you correct, right? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I could have told you we were going to go get a sandwich. And I said, you came at me correct. And he said, damn right I did. <laughs> so, you know, can you be engaged? How engaged can you be and just meet meet people the way that they are? Do you really know um, 
how well somebody is doing with their conditioning. How, how hard is your own conditioning to deal with? What happened to you? What happened to them? What was your advantage, their disadvantage? How do you know? So, um, in terms of meditation practice, in, in the West often we do what's known as a forgiveness practice. There's this entrance into metta. Metta is the Pali word for, well, we don't really have an English uh, cognate to it. So we have a tendency to create these lists of words that mean one word in Pali. But metta is a word that's often translated as loving kindness or friendliness, something like that. Can you hold kindness in the mind, can you hold kindness in the, in the body if you're blaming, if you're angry? So when we talk about this uh, practice in the beginning, it's about moving out of anger into kindness. Um, the near enemy of metta is sentimentality. So the, the near enemy of kindness is sentimentality, where you have this sort of idea of what it is. The, you're, you're generating a story of sympathy or sentiment. And metta is really being in the present moment, in the experience of the present moment, not caught up in thinking, not caught up in, in narrative. Uh, so I want to give you a choice about whether or not to do a forgiveness practice, which would be directly addressing the mind state of anger or moving in and uh, uh, looking at a way of intentionally establishing the mind state of kindness. Everybody know what a mind state is? Um, <clears throat> in Buddhism we have a, a way of uh, pulling apart sensing experience and the way that we form the world. And so you have the capacity to sense something. This is the, the, the body and the, the, these modalities of sensing. In the West we have five of them. You know them as touching, uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling. And in Buddhism they add thinking because thinking is what you make the sensing experience into. You are all listening to my voice and I'm conveying meaning to you which I can tell by your responses to me. And What's actually happening is that you're hearing vibrating sound. My, my larynx is, is vibrating sound. And you've been conditioned to understand English, and so you're translating the vibrating sound into a particular word, and then you're associating all of the meaning that you have for that word to it, and then you're stringing them together, and you're creating for yourself a meaning out of vibrating sound, which is actually reflective of your conditioning and may not be reflective of my conditioning. The things that I may be saying um, have, have this emotional meaning to me, this uh, uh, meaning in time to me that you may not uh, share as you assemble it. Uh, some of these ideas that I think are really terrific you may think are terrible and that's basically because your conditioning and mine are not the same. Um, so there's lots of ways to come at this, lots of ways to explore it. One way would be to start 
unraveling the anger piece, one way would be to push into the mind state of kindness. So you have the capacity to sense, and you have the thing that you make it into, that would be the thinking piece. And between these two is the mind state, which acts as a filter. If you intentionally generate the mind of kindness and you put it in between the sensing and what you make it into, everything that you make out of the sensing experience is infused with kindness. And so it, it's a bias toward kindness that you intentionally create and so that the experience you have of the world is a, is a, a place of kindness. If you generate anger instead and you put the, the mind state of anger in the mind, the sensing process, everything is infused with the quality of anger and it creates an angry world where you could as easily have created a, a kind world. Um, and this is going to be largely based on your conditioning. Did you grow up in an environment, in a family system where kindness was highly prized and so they valued it and they taught you how to do it and they rewarded you? doing it? Or did you grow up in a family system where anger was highly prized and they taught you how to do it and they rewarded you for doing it? And so here's where we really want to begin looking and seeing. Um, do you know what it's like to come home at the end of the day having been angry all day long? What, do you know uh, you live in a body, right? You're a human. How do you get angry? You get angry by this biochemical process where all day long all of these strong neurochemicals, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, all of these are dumped into the system uh, to generate that experience of anger which then have to be filtered out by the liver. It's very taxing on the system to do that. What's it like to generate kindness all day long? What's it like at the end of the day when all day long you've been bathing yourself in the, the neurochemicals of kindness. It feels completely different. The way that the world appears is completely different. <coughs> uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a, a teacher and he has a meditation um, which is, he calls the smile meditation. Do you know it? Again, be safe in the world. Uh, all day long, everywhere you go, everyone you meet, smile at them. And see how they respond, see how the world is. I've modified it slightly, so I like contrast as a teaching tool. So all, the, all morning long, go around the world and just sneer at everyone you meet. <laughs> just sneer and then see how the world looks. And then all afternoon, smile at everyone and then see how the world looks. I was in an elevator this morning <coughs> and um, have you ever been in an elevator and four or five people get in and then all of the buttons are pushed? Have you ever had that experience? You know, you're on a high floor, you need to get to the ground, and it's just, hmm? Hmm. Hmm? Hmm. So, after about six of these, 
I said to the woman next to me, we're having a slideshow. <laughs> Big smile, and she said to me, the person who, who, got, on, who got off as you were um, getting on had said, uh, looks like we're on the local train today. So it was this wonderful exchange. Have a wonderful day, uh, she says, as she walks out onto the street. Um, but I'm often in elevators and nobody says anything and we just go about uh, our lives as if there aren't other people in, in the world. It's an interesting thing. How, do you, how are you in the world? How open are you? Here we are again at this, this place of generosity, this place of openness. Can you be open? to the experience and can you be authentic and share the experience. So this is this training that we're talking about, this practice. So the question is, do you find yourself angry tonight and would forgiveness practice be better? Forgiveness practice is about uh, relieving anger or uh, is it uh, more effective to work directly for uh, training the mind to be kind. Everybody wants forgiveness? Nobody? Everybody wants kindness? <laughs> so, um, there's a couple of ways to um, practice metta. One is to generate a narrative that creates a positive feeling state in the body. It, we like to call that wet metta. And I uh, teach dry metta. So what dry metta means is that there's no attempt to create the feeling of, of kindness or uh, positive emotion in the body. The idea is to locate the mind state of kindness. The value of that is that in any experience you're in, if all you have to do is put the filter of kindness in there and you get good at being able to do that, then in any environment, in any situation you're in, you can generate the mind state of kindness. Whereas if you had to generate a positive feeling and you were being overwhelmed by other intense feelings, you might not have been able to do that. George, is it, is it a, a mind state, a dry mind state? Is it something like um, everyone, everyone around me deserves happiness? That, that would be a wet metta. That would be a wet metta. Yeah. So I, I guess I don't know whether dry metta would be. So in dry metta, what we're attempting to do is uh, identify what the mind state of kindness feels like and then to track whether it's present in the mind or not. So it's totally mind oriented and not at all body oriented. So what you're going to do is look for the mind state of metta inside the head, typically is where it is. And we're going to do that by using uh, people that we're already in relationship to. Do you know people that when you think of them, you automatically come into a place of loving kindness? Now, for some people, uh, some relationships are quite complex. So you may have this kindness thing. You may also have eroticism. You may also have frustration, <laughs> all sorts of different experiences. We all carry a working model of other people and in that working model of other people are the mind states. 
What we want to do is find a simple relationship where thinking of that person brings with them the mind state of kindness. And then what we want to do is identify what that experience is like so that we can know whether it's there or not. So what we're going to do is a meditation where we intentionally explore uh, bringing people to mind and seeing whether or not the mind state of kindness is there or not. Does that make sense? So um, we'll do that um, three times, and I'll I'll guide it so you'll have a sense of how that is. You don't have. So this is deepening your practice. So I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One of the ways to do that is retreat practice. I I really want you to consider going on at least one uh, residential retreat this year, one week long, at at least, maybe longer. It's the beginning of the year. Um, There's a a weekend retreat for women in uh, Joshua Tree coming up. Uh, Joanna Harper and Mary Stancavage are leading that one. Um, The Memorial Day retreat on the West Coast is going to be over that weekend. It's a four-day retreat. If you've not been to a retreat before, that would be uh, maybe a good place to start. What can often happen um, for people who haven't yet gone on retreat is that their mind uh, scares them with what might happen to hours and hours of sitting in silence. Um, I'm doing a 12-day retreat in New York over the same weekend. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat. My retreats are organized with the, the first four or five days of the retreat. You do nothing but Metta. Uh, it concentrates the mind and t- takes you into a, a very kind place with yourself and then you can push into Vipassana. So I really like that way of practicing. It's a meaningful life retreat, so I'm, I'm also talking about relational mindfulness and attachment theory. Um, the Buddha was very poetic in describing conditioning. I like to describe conditioning in Western psychological terms. Um, you do that to a child, they turn out that way. It's pretty straightforward. So you can examine what conditions you faced when you were a child and see how they're currently operating in you as an adult. And if it isn't uh, a good outcome or the best outcome, there are things that you can do intentionally to shift that. So that's what the focus of of the Meaningful Life retreats are about. Um, In the summer, I will be doing a Meaningful Life retreat uh, in July, and then in August, ATS will be doing one on on the East Coast. I'm not sure yet where that will be. Um, And then in in the winter, I will do a Meaningful Life retreat uh, as well. Um, We are not, of course, the only place. There are many places that are offering retreats, so if none of those work with your calendar, just this is the beginning of the year, set the intention to go on at least one uh, week-long or longer residential retreat, find the retreat that you're going to go to, sign up, pay for it, tell everyone you know that you're going on this retreat so that you'll be utterly humiliated if you chicken out (laughs) and get yourself to go. Um, If you look out there, there's a bunch of flyers and uh, things on the desk for other things that are coming up, but in order to really deepen your practice and, and to shift some of this deep conditioning that we've all faced, the, the retreat practice is really pretty essential for that. 
Could we mention uh, Blake's uh, yeah, day sure. long on January 28th? Um, do you want to say? Sure. Uh, Blake Abramovitz is doing a, a day long here on the 28th, which is a Saturday, so coming up. Blake is um, uh, one of the uh, mentors in the Meaningful Life uh, program, so he's also a yoga teacher. Is What's he going to do? A little bit of mindful movement, but it's going to be kind of relational mindfulness okay. as well as... Uh, Oh, good. So you'll get a taste of, of, of relational mindfulness. And he also uh, does yoga on, on my retreat. So anybody who was on my winter retreat will have had that, a gentle kind of in. Um, so there's flyers on the front desk. Okay, flyers for that. I'm also an ardent supporter of meditation centers. Uh, the Vipassana path in particular can be difficult and it's important to have Sangha, important to have people you know well enough that you can have a dialogue about your meditation practice with. Have you ever ha tried to have a conversation about the difficulties of your meditation practice with someone who doesn't meditate? <laughs> have you ever tried to explain to someone who doesn't meditate why you went on a silent retreat where you sat for 12 hours a day? <laughs> It, it really does slow down the progress that you have if you, if you aren't able to build in relationships with people who are also practicing. Where would you meet people who are practicing meditation if not at a meditation center? So um, I know that we've been here a long time and you may think that we're always going to be here, but I can assure you that the finances of a meditation center are always precarious and we need you to be generous each time that you come. This is this practice of generosity as well. So we've crunched the numbers and we think that a good amount of money uh, for people to come each time is $15. But then resources in our country are not uh, fairly distributed or equally distributed. And so some people, $15 doesn't really have meaning. And you need to practice at a level that has meaning for, for you. So if $15 is too little, then you, you should be practicing at a higher level. If $15 is good, that's great. If $15 is too much, then practice at a lower level. And if you're not resourced, please understand that we as a community will make this place for you to come to. You don't have to, to, to do anything else except come. Um, if you would also be so kind as to put the chairs away and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.